Welcome to the DMF. I am your host, Justin Yachts. And today is, I'm putting up a repeat. This is the full interview with Christopher Renshaw, Tony nominated director. So enjoy. Okay, today I have a special guest with me today. I have Christopher Renshaw. He is a director. He is a Tony nominated director. Director, Drama Desk Award, Opera, Musical Theater, uh, The King and I, he's done so many things. How are you doing today, sir? Very good, and you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So in doing my research with you, um, I found out that you grew up in, uh, in Reading, um, England. How do you think that shaped your uh, directing style? <laughs> Reading if at all. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, Reading's only famous for about three things. I mean, one is obviously where Oscar Wilde went to prison um, and wrote De Profundis. I, I think the other one is, I think Kate Winslet was born there. Um, really? And the other one is that we had a very good biscuit. I mean, in your language, cookie manufacturer. <laughs> apart, apart from that, there's not much else happening in, in Reading. So it was... And I, I apologize to Reading. Um, it's a place you kind of can't wait to get out of. If you, you know, it, it was I, I couldn't wait to get to somewhere else. So that's how it grew up. That's how I grew up. Do, do you think it influenced the directing style at all, or anything in your creative, or was it just I just want to get out of here as soon as possible? No, no. I mean, to tell you the truth, I went to a an all boys school, what we call a grammar school, which is kind of like a public school. Um, which in American means a private school, go figure, are two <laughs> languages that are so actually so different. Um, but I went to an all-boys school um, where you know, sports were obviously quite important. I was useless at them. So I was kind of forced into thinking of something else. So I suppose how it influenced me was it made me a sort of weak-looking scrappy boy, um, scrawny boy, um, think of things, other things I could shine in. So I learned to play the piano, I started acting. I even started directing when I was still at school. I, I was desperate to find my place, which is so interesting about that kind of awful education. You know, it kind of forces some people into other directions because they don't quite fit into the main direction. Um, but I did do amazing things. I played Prospero. I uh, played Jimmy Porter and looked back in anger and I directed my first opera when I was 15 there. So I guess I can't be so rude about Reading. That, that's one of the things I was fascinated about is that you did uh, a look back in anger because that's, that's one of my monologues that I was given as, <laughs> as yeah, is, we, is a look back in anger. <laughs> we, my main reason was to show off and uh, smoke a pipe on stage and say a four-letter word. That, that was kind of my big turn on. Because it, it started then, this was in the 60s. I don't know, in the, it was, um, I don't know when he wrote it, but it was then still really daring. Um, yeah. So I think I, I did it for shock value, actually. To, and, and then the local girls' school. Usually we were all playing the ladies' parts, you know, real <laughs> typical boys' school. So... Uh, yeah. I don't know whether that happens in this country, but we had to wear our mother's bras and put uh, rugby socks in them. 
Oh, that's and, hilarious. Um, slap. <laughs> I mean, what, what chance does a lad have, you know? <laughs> I mean, today, I don't know if you would be able to get away with that because it's so um, taboo oh, cool. now. Yeah. We, 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 you know, you would be raked under the coals for doing something like that. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe you could get away with that. It's interesting, though. Look back in anger. When I, when I read it, it's very, um, I think it's very applicable to the times, what was happening. Because I, it's like right after World War II. And I feel it, it reflects kind of the culture of like a changing of, of that. Do you think that's why it resonated so well in, uh, in England? Yeah, there's you know, the broken youth, the youth with nowhere to go. I mean, it was ever thus. And, and I wonder if perhaps the world has changed. I, I, now, is, is there more places to go, more things to do? You know, his famous line is, there's no good causes left anymore. Perhaps there are good causes. I mean, it's weird he said that, but that was that post-war kind of feeling that it was the end of culture. Um, perhaps, it, perhaps it is a better world now. I don't know. Perhaps mm. there are good causes now. Interesting. Interesting. Now, I wanted to backtrack a little bit in doing my research. I found that you had polio, but you had it after it was no longer... Um, the pandemic yeah <laughs> now you talked about losing your toys was that i mean for me personally that would have been soul crushing was that soul crushing? yes it's one of those things when i go to therapy you know it's a very good thing to bring up with your therapist they love that one but my <laughs> toys were burnt because they might have been infected i where where have you found that out about me i didn't tell Just you that did i just just doing somewhere. just doing research sir oh, my job wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, it was after polio was almost gone and a few kids got it and it was kind of weird and it was very late and i got it i was completely paralyzed um went to the hospital for i mean i i, I sort of remember being there for three months or so and Yes, my toys were burnt. I mean, not in front of me. Oh, okay. all my little, that's good. All my, little, all my little rabbits and teddy bears had to be destroyed. End of the world. <laughs> but in, in return, I was promised a dog, a little puppy. Ah. So, I, so I got, in, you know, who I met when I came out of hospital. So that, that was a positive thing. So, so, they were, so they kind of gave you that, that caveat, you know, it's like, okay, get rid of the toys, but... We're going to get yes, you a yes. puppy. Oh, I was okay. offered a, a, a train set or a puppy. Huh? And I chose a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Now, you said when you came back from school that, like, because you also, you had a rare blood disease, and that caused you to go back to the hospital. And when you came back, it was kind of, you were kind of an oddball. You said that it was, um, yeah. you, you kind of discovered the arts as an escape from uh, sports. Now, the thing that I was fascinated about was, it doesn't seem like it was the idea of um, of doing sports that scared you. It was more the idea of not being good at it. Was was yeah, that failing. the thing that was was why you didn't really want to take part in it? Yeah, failure. And I think in those days, I'm sure physical, edu physical education now has come a long way, but they were only really interested in the kids that were you know winning or could go and win 
school trophies and um, so the kids at the back um, we used to hide in the locker rooms and when they were doing diving we used to go around in circles so that that we'd never get <laughs> we had all sorts of tricks but we, they go away you haven't of, taken us yet uh, yeah. we, we, we've got to go to the back of the line <laughs> yeah. and it was kind of a load of misfits at the back and the other thing one doesn't want to be is one of the I mean I don't know the correct word to use but I, I didn't want to look like a disaster or there were awful words they used for kids at the back of the line mm. um, which are now not at all good words but I thought well that's not acceptable either so I've got to find something so I've got to be clever at something and so it was acting and playing the piano and the organ so I was a I at one stage I nearly became a church organist so I was <laughs> after anything that could stop me being ridiculed for being not very good at sports what, which what I'm sure is a lot of kids a yeah. lot of kids have the same story. I mean, even now, I'm sure that's one of the things. Absolutely. What What was it about the um, the organ that appealed to you? Because <laughs> that's a that's a a fascinating instrument. I mean, there's a lot to learn there. Was it just um, um, the complexity, the power? I mean, the, the amount of noise you can actually make, and compared to the piano, are you, are you a pianist? Do you play the piano? I do. I do play the piano. I wouldn't call well, myself I, a pianist. I'm somebody who can accompany himself as he sings. <laughs> you know, I used to play like I could sort of fake my way through Chopin, um, you know, some of the bravura pieces. Um, but it used, I never had any technique and my wrists used to hurt because I was just bashing through, um, not using the correct muscles. With the organ, you don't need any muscles because it's, it's like playing almost like an electric keyboard mm -hmm. so you didn't actually have that physical thing you're not plucking it's not a bashing it it's just so i could actually play the organ without hurting my wrists no figure and i was very good at the, the pedals for some reason that that mm -hmm. the pedals of the organ I, I rather enjoyed you know i didn't have to look down i learned properly um so now kind of like driving i'm quite I quite like the pedals of a car who reminds me of playing the organ <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that's funny um so you were experiencing isolation at a very young age do you think that the isolation developed your uh, vision for directing because you you had to be alone or i, I think isolation sends you inward um, um so i suppose so so you make up stories in your head mm -hmm. um and i am quite a good storyteller in my work and i suppose that as a kid i was i didn't have anybody to play with mm -hmm. uh, i didn't like my sister then you know and i had a mother emotionally overbearing mother and a nice dad but you know it wasn't a loving experience so I guess I was going inward and coming up with my own fantasy lines so I suppose yes isolation produces other things in you mm. um, but I do envy kids who had a more fulfilling <laughs> childhood 
I hated childhood. Yeah. <laughs> horrible business. Now, now you said technique kind of um, eluded you. Um, what did like? Did nobody know? Because I mean, I assume you were playing by ear, Chopin. No, I I I was never good at ear. ear so I I could read almost anything. Oh. So I, I I've always had not very good musical ear um but if you put now not at all you know but in those days you put a piece of music in front of me i could play it so wow. but if somebody if you asked me to play by ear i couldn't do it i had i had a very good teacher i mean for, for where i was and brilliant amazing person took a lot of time with me i know it's good at sight reading wow. um <laughs> so, so okay so, so it was sight reading so did nobody tell you <laughs> that, you know, to have more, to, to, to slow you down with the technique? Well, I tried, uh, and I eventually, when I was at college in Oxford, I did go up to London every week at the Royal Academy of Music to have proper piano lessons with a concert pianist. And, I, and he, you know, he was explaining about how it comes from, you know, it all comes from the shoulders and not the arms. and. I, I really understood it, but I think by that stage I was just too lazy and I wasn't practicing. So yeah. theatre was more immediate. So as soon as you get into the theatre, it's all quick, it's all fast. Yeah. You know, you don't have to um, plow away at scales and all that stuff. See, that's that's the uh, when when yeah when I was younger, my parents had me do piano and yeah, I would just practice for the recital. And just kind of you know fake my way through it. People think, oh wow, he's so good. Like, I yeah, think we're we're related. <laughs> we're, anything yeah. for applause. But, <laughs> yes. So then, um, but later on in life, when you know, got into more singing and acting. You know, I, you know, I wanted to learn. So then I, you know, had to you know learn actual technique. And you know, still to this day, I try to do at least a little bit of piano every day. You know, good. just to just to keep that in. Um, one thing that you, you've talked about is you talked about how you lost your voice, like it, like it, like it broke. How did that, how, how did it break? Was it just improper technique or was there something? Oh, no, it's just puberty. So puberty. when I was, yeah, when <laughs> I was, before puberty, I had a really high soprano voice. So I could hit notes that only the great opera singers could sing. I could sing something called a top E flat, you know, um, and a <laughs> precocious little <laughs> thing. So I could do, uh, you know, this coloratura and, you know, the high stuff and sing like Callas and, and then go with a top E flat. And it, kind of, it actually went in the middle of a, <laughs> a concert I was doing and I was singing <laughs> song and it suddenly went oh, more and it sort of everyone oh, what's happened so my voice i think i've been singing over the break which is very yeah. damaging so if you as a treble voice soprano if you keep on singing as your body changes i think i developed a way of fake faking a soprano so mm. anyway when once it had broken i think the instrument was so damaged that i i can croon you know, I can sound like a bad Bing Crosby, and that, um, that's all I've got, really. <laughs> so I thought, well, that career's over. 
Yeah, because you, you became, uh, you said a counter tenor, which is yeah, it's interesting. When, that's when I went to Oxford. I, I, I desperately wanted to be in the choir. We, um, we had a wonderful choir. They did recordings and tours. And I thought, oh, that looks fun. You know, can shine again and not just be a, a rather bad academic. So the only way I could get in was learning to sing falsetto. So I, so, you know, like Little Mary Sunshine in um, Chicago. So uh, <clears throat> that's what I did. And I wasn't very good. And I sang out of tune, but at least um, I got my first ever visit to America and sang in, what's it called? Trinity Wall Street, a, a famous church in Wall Street. So we did a whole tour of the States and sang at Yale and I did recordings, you know, so <laughs> anything to survive. Yeah, because your mother uh, pushed you, she she pushed you into Oxford. Magdalene. Magdalene. Yeah, Magdalene. Yes, as but a um, music student. Yeah, it's Magdalene Cambridge and Magdalene Oxford. Go figure. Mm. Yes, as a music student. <laughs> and I was very bad. But you said you had a personality. That um, that's what uh, kind of led you into it. Yes, which gradually left, you know, because I was terrible academic. I wasn't very good in the choir. Um, and I, I suddenly felt, oh, my God, this is all running away from me. And I'm going to be a, and also ran and end up, which is no bad thing, but teaching music. And, you know, I thought, oh, I can't have this. So uh, I decided to direct and conduct an opera, which is what I decided to do. And I, I guess I've talked about this before. You're going to know everything, aren't you? No. Um, I didn't know I talked about it. <laughs> so yeah. I, 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 I directed and music directed uh, one of Benjamin Britten's church parables in the main church in Oxford and got, I got a national review for my direction from the Daily yeah. Telegraph, which, and I said, all right, that's it. I'm going to be an opera director and packed everything else up. That's a true story. And now, was everybody so, was everybody um, understanding about that when they saw that? Were they kind of like, "Oh, yes, go, go do"? What well, you mean, my well, yes, I mean, your parents, in, in some, parents, yes, because I just I wrote to every opera director in London, and you know, a lot of them were gentlemen, were gay gentlemen, um, and you know, this this precocious chap from Oxford writes to you and says, you know, I'm eighteen. I want to become an opera director. Can I meet you? So I had many, many invitations for lunch, which mm. I used to go up on the train, have lunch, have two bottles of wine and come back. And it was a, I met everybody. Um, and I must have had something. I mean, I, I didn't know anything. Wow. But, uh, so you, so you were like I networking. Was, um, you were networking was, without yeah. social media. <laughs> Well, what could you do in those days? You know, we didn't have internet. So, and the Brits love having boozy lunches. And, and I mean, yeah. so there was this 19 year old. And, and you know, I, I, I think I met everybody in the opera business then. And then they invited me to rehearsals. And, and then immediately I left Oxford, even before I was offered a, uh, a post at um, a wonderful festival called the Grindbourne Festival, which is terribly, terribly prestigious, and went off there, and I hadn't a clue 
about anything. I mean, I, I really didn't know. <laughs> and I never trained, you, so. Did, did the um, not knowing, do you think that gave you a vulnerability or were you somebody that kind of covered it up with either arrogance or no, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, fake, <laughs> fake. Well, well, they, I remember the, 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 what, the only thing that sticks out is, um, can, can you, uh, can you go and check what, what the tab queue is? And this is my director telling me, what are the tabs? What's a queue? And I, yeah. I'm sure I asked a helpful stage manager who said, no, because the tabs are the front curtains and a queue is when they, oh, got it, got it. So on we went. You know. <laughs> and I was arrogant. Yeah, because... Brilliant, yeah. probably in a personality way, but really learning on the hoof um and i mean to tell you the truth i was nearly fired after my after my second festival um peter hall didn't like me very much um thought, thought i wasn't quite his type um <laughs> so i had to sort of start learning again really and retain what i could of the push and the drive and actually learn some technique <laughs> interesting Interesting. So, so you kind of, so you learned on the job. Yeah. And I, I've been often heard saying to young directors, oh, that's the best way to learn. Just, just do it if anybody will let you. Um, and I, I sometimes regret saying this because I think training is also very important. And, um, and you know, I, I'm not very happy when an actor hasn't been trained. Um, so, yeah. Perhaps that's just bravura, but I, I never trained as a director. Never. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. But, if, but perhaps it's evident in my work. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> you actually saw a play of mine, didn't you? My thing is going click. I did. Um, I did see. Um, I, I saw the code, and uh, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you about that as well. One thing uh, you seem to really love the uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, like you fell in love with that style of, and you did the Mikado, yeah. and you did HEMS Pinafore. Uh, what what um, I've heard you talk about the Mikado, but I haven't heard you talk about HEMS Pinafore. What was it about? Yeah, what was it about that? What was that? Um, what the whole of the? Do you, are you uh, familiar with the Gilbert and Sullivan? I mean, we kind of grew up on them, and, and that's when I had my mother's bra on uh, and rugby socks. I played Mabel in the Pirates of Penzance. Um, they, they were part of our culture then, uh, pre-war and post-war, Second World War, um, Britain. It, it was part of our fabric, um, and at that stage, they were immensely popular. They were, you know, the amateur operatic societies. Everyone was playing Gilbert. Sullivan, there were companies that only did Gilbert Sullivan, so it was really part of the British culture. And what was fun was to get hold of them as a young rascal and sort of twist them around a bit. Um, so that's what was exciting. I mean, the Tinnafor, I, I just enjoyed because I, I was taking the, the, how can you say here, taking the piss, taking the Mickey, making fun of um, the Royals. Um, uh, and I particularly Prince Charles, and so I had everybody delivering it, and terrible, terrible, you know, all that. 
which was very, very, um, it was funny, you know, and it hasn't been yeah. done, hadn't been done then. So I, I just like taking something that was totally in my heritage, my mum and dad, and, you know, everybody knew Gilbert Sullivan and, and twisting it and, you know, just making it more into music theatre rather than operetta. And that's actually how I first got noticed by Cameron McIntosh, who, who saw a production of mine and said, you know, Chris, you shouldn't be doing operas, you should be doing musicals. So thank you yeah. to Cameron. Yeah, yeah. Do you think, because um, you've talked about the vision, do you think that your vision started with, with Gilbert and Sullivan? Did that give you that um, yeah, yeah. The, the deconstructing the classics? as you would say, as... I think that's a fair thing to say. Um, you know, and I think when I did The King and I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think what happened when I moved away, it, it, you know, in opera, as much as I, you know, I used to love it, all you could really do is make it look weird and set it in a, a lady toilet and it, everybody raves <laughs> about you. I mean, that's, that's opera. I was never any good at that. I, I did enjoy reversing the Gilbert and Sullivan and trying to get the the real cultural hypocrisy that it it, it had. Um, I don't know what, you know, perhaps it did. I mean, The King and I, which obviously changed my career, I, I went to live in Thailand for three years, but, uh, three months before doing it. And, and I think, when I did mine, it was so authentic and respectful of another culture. That's what made that very famous in the 90s, which is almost the reverse of Gilman Sullivan, where I'm take, making fun of a British culture um, because I'm British and I can and I'm allowed to. Whereas when I tackled The King and I, I, I was so in awe of the Thai culture that it, it was almost reverse. I was almost honoring it um, and, and deeply respecting and you know I was a, a, a more of a fan of the, the ties and than the, the woman who comes in and tries tries to um, change them so I don't know it's, who knows what grabs us and why we do it what was there something going to the to the king and I um, was there something that you read or was it just experiencing the culture firsthand that opened the door for how you were going to, how you were going to do The King and I? Yeah, I mean, I knew the movie because my mother had taken me to see it. It all comes back to my mother. And Deborah Carr, I always thought, looked like my mother, blah, blah, blah. So I knew it. I, when I was asked to do it in Australia, I said, oh yeah, didn't even read it. And it was my designer over there said Chris you've got to take this seriously because he'd done a movie in Thailand um, and he said you the ties are something else he said come on he got, we went off together and um, as I said I was three months there and was staggered by their culture by the, by the depth of it you know the contradictions of violence and love and I mean I was so into it I wanted to become a monk um, and, it, and those Quite a lot of my early musicals, I did the same when I did South Pacific, uh, which didn't go to Broadway, but I went to Vanuatu, where, I don't know whether you know South Pacific, but the actual mm -hmm. island where N Nelly Forbush was based and 
sort of got involved in their culture and smoked um, kava, whatever it's called, in in, um, in, in religious circles. And like. So yeah, th that's that's something I love about you know in doing my research is how you would take somebody's culture and and learn about it and yes. try to delve into it as much even like uh, Carmen La, uh, La Cubana La Cubana yeah when you did yeah. that you went and experienced the culture so you're not this yeah. outsider coming in well, you're kind of an outsider taking in all of it. Yes. It's complex now, and I think in the last couple of years that those, it, it, I mean, we all know what's going on in the world, and I think now I, I have to be more respectful. I, you know, there is, you don't want to be accused of cultural appropriation, but every, anything I've done, uh, including A Wonderful World and the story of Lewis Armstrong, I've, I've tried to do by steeping myself in that culture and as an outsider having a ability to view it um, that I'm kind of looking forward soon to doing something that, again I mean that's totally within what my background is um, mm. except I feel I've done all that I mean there's nothing much about England like what well, I did all that with Gildan Sullivan I mean I, I don't have a lot to say about England um, mm. America, yeah, I'm an honorary American. I mean, I've been here 20, 23 years. So mm. um, I'm, I think my next musical is going to be an American one. So there we go. All right. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's I can't it. go and live in Thailand for three months. <laughs> <laughs> but but it sounds like when you went to Thailand, you you enjoyed it. It wasn't like this this punishment or something. Like, oh god, I got to go to Thailand now and uh, sit around. It's like you like really took it in, like you know, yeah. as if uh, like India. That might same, be another culture yeah. you might want to go visit. <laughs> the same with Cuba. So when I when I did the Carmen in Cuba, it it was. I mean, the same kind of full-on experience. And that's why my Carmen La Cubana, which has been everywhere with a Cuban cast, um, I really want to bring back because I, I think Cuba is still a country that needs authentic representation. Um, wonderful people, dreadful government, but there's something about those those people that uh, so I'm really hoping I can bring that back soon. It's played Paris, London, Berlin. It's been it's played Shanghai. Um, I'd love to bring it to America. I think yeah no I think it would play well in America now, especially with everything that's going on. I mean I think oh, yeah. this this would probably be the time to do that play. Especially with West Side Story coming out and yes. them taking that, I I think it would really um, play well. Now I I wanted to backtrack a little bit to, to Australia because you went to Australia. What is it about Australia? And you're not the first person I've heard this from. That it kind of feels refreshing. Is is it just a freedom that is not there in England that Australia has? Yeah. It was, it embraced me with open arms. Um, I mean, to tell you the truth, when I first came to the States, that gave me 
the real burst of freedom, which is might be odd now with all that's going on. But when I when I first came to the States, I thought, my God, this place is. I, it, it gave me a rush um, of excitement. I mean, real typical Brit going to New York. Mm-hmm. Australia is is like a version of England, but far more open, um, kinder, not up its own backside. Yeah. Um, and I was, it was the first place that really treated me like a, a full grown-up director. Um, so I did about 12 operas at the Sydney Opera House and then did four musicals. So that, I owe everything to Australia. It, it's a lovely, lovely place. And I've always considered it my second home. Um, I, I, I went just before COVID, I think, and, but I'm, I'm not sure I'll ever work there again. I mean, I will if I'm asked, but they're also changing in a way. And Australians are becoming more developing of their of the talent they have within their own communities. Um, and I think they should go through that a little before not bringing foreigners in, you know. Um, yeah. So they, I was they, seem, the, they, they seem to be more open to, to ideas. Oh, yeah. um, I, I, I know uh, in England, um, I, I did this a new acting technique that came from Germany and they tried to, you know, present it to England and it just it never really caught on with England, but they found the funding they needed through Australia. So it's, it, it seems like it's got a lot of, you know, the feel of England, but without the, you know, the staunchiness and, you know, it's like yeah. this is the way we do it. <laughs> but they're also learning that no country can be one thing. And as Australia, like this country is country of immigrants and um, the old, we're all, you know, really and we have the queen as head of state it is going to go because it's i think we all over the world have to accept that we are a mobile people and we come to countries and um i was watching that happen in australia and get more and more inclusive of you know the, the, the immigration that's happening there which i think has happened in england too i'm watching I'm watching stuff on Netflix from Made in Britain. God, it's grown up. It really is a very grown up culture and so inclusive. And when I went back, I went back there in January. I I was amazed at how England's come on or the United Kingdom has come on. It, you know, really a little further ahead than we are here in terms of inclusivity, I think. I was, I was, I felt that, you know. Yeah, no, I, I would, I would agree. I would agree. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, a lot of things are all happening at the same. I mean, you can see the parallels even in the politics of, you know, yeah. of all the countries. It's like they're kind of going through the same situation here. This, uh, this sort of divide, and it's you can see the, the two sides. They almost resemble each other in some ways. You know. Um, Interesting thing, because you talked about um, you found a real confidence in, in farce, like that gave you a, a confidence. Through, um, um, but you, all right, talking a little bit about um, Cameron McIntosh, 
you you do um, he courts you to do to do a play. The, the play is called um, Cafe Puccini. Um, what what why do you think that? I mean, because at that time you had the Phantom that was not received well when they were kind of. I'm I'm a little mixed on the thing. It wasn't previews. It was just kind of like, what what was. Andrew Lloyd Webber has his own festival um, in in a church in his grounds where he previews all his stuff. And he was working with Cameron. um, And I think my show was an idea, I think, from Andrew about the life of Puccini or something uh, with actors singing Puccini. And I, 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 as far as I remember, I, I, I helped conceive it and we did it at Sidmonton the year that he was only showing the first act of Phantom. Yeah. Um, and, and the first act of Phantom, I remember it now very well. Um, but my show was, oh God, everybody's saying, this is the one. So this yeah. went straight to <laughs> Wyndham's and then closed in six weeks. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> but what a baptism produced by Cameron McIntosh and Andrew Lloyd Webber and then dying think, after six weeks. Do, do you think it kind of died because it was um, the changing of the times? We were going more toward musical theater and getting away from opera? Mm-hmm. Well, the, as far as I remember, the critics really complained that actors were singing Puccini and not opera singers. So I loved it. I loved the way the mm. actors did it. Um, one, one guy... God, he was a very young singer, but he, he was singing the famous Nessun Dorma in English. And I thought he sounded fantastic. And I'd mm-hmm. worked with Pavarotti, but suddenly that to hear an actor singing this, I, I liked it more. But the, the critics were then very snobby and said, you know, yeah. actors shouldn't sing Puccini. I also think <laughs> I was a very young director. Come on, you know, you, I, I, um, you know, I don't know. I, I can barely remember it. But it's the great warning. I, I know you're an actor from workshops and going to the stage, the real stage. Workshops can be so deceptive. So you do a workshop, three weeks rehearsal, you know, no set, you know, blah, blah. It feels fantastic. But lifting that into the real world of theatre can be very deceptive. And I have learned that over my life. Beware the you know, when they say, oh, it's the best workshop I've ever seen. It's going to go to Broadway. Blah, blah. Yeah. You know, it's a hard yeah. thing to lift that into yeah. the real world of theatre. So yeah. never believe a workshop. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's, it's kind of a trap that gets mm. that gets put that can get put on you. It's like, oh, my God, it's just the most amazing thing ever. Mm. And then you put it up like. What was that? That was it. And then they're like, you know, yeah, it's not. Well, that wasn't as good. (laughs) Um, I was fascinated when you were talking about producers. You talked about John Frost who um, produced The King and I. And you said he he was fantastic because he really, you know, just let you kind of do your thing. Was that was that a revelation or was that something you were used to Um, or? Well, uh, I, Frost, who became a very wonderful friend, and he's so had a wonderful career in Australia and, and has got Tony Awards, a lot of his stuff has come here. Um, he was like a Cameron to me. Uh, 
you know, Cameron was much further along the line. Um, John was a wonderful, open-hearted enthusiast for the world of theater, knew his musicals backwards. He, he sort of did let me, yes. I mean, he, he let me get away with spending too much. Um, yeah. I, I don't know, it was real fun. His office then was his house and we used to go and have dinner and drinks in his back garden in you know the Australian mm -hmm. evenings and it, he, he, he was a joy. And still is a very, very smashing bloke. Um, yeah. And uh, God bless him. Yeah, he let me, he was, I mean, perhaps he thought my ideas were great and he let me do it. But <clears throat> he did let it happen almost as if, as how it was conceived. Yeah. Um, so good on him. As they say in Australia, good on him. Good on him. Good on him. Good on him. <laughs> Now you've talked about how the, the importance of um, sets and now you, I think you said you call yourself a set bunny. Um, would you say, so you kind of start with the place. Is that kind of where the vision kind of begins with the um, with play? Yeah. I mean, for me, <clears throat> however cheap or however small however it, it has to have a special look otherwise i don't like doing realistic sets so i like to find a way of expressing the essence of where one wants to be um that's i guess what i think i i, I have done realism you know i, I just don't you know if you, i don't i think theater should have a distillation of um what you what you what it was and what you want to say with it so the set for me is the most important um element and but you you know designers now i mean designers are fantastic and yeah you work with a designer and you talk about things and it i always say to them don't give me what i want give me something that out of what you've heard that comes out of you yeah um, that's what we I try and do Interesting. So, so it kind of starts, it kind of starts with an idea and then you kind of want the set designer to kind of bring in his own feel to it. So you're kind of managing all these yeah. different elements that are going around. Yes. And I will know as soon as I see anything, if it, if it, if it's going to inspire me, you know, um, but I, as I said, Brian Thompson, with whom I did the King and I, several other productions who was one of the creators of the Rocky Horror Show. I learned a lot from Brian in terms of distilling, I don't know whether you know the, the King mm. and I set, his famous set, which was only elephants. I mean, there were, it was so many elephants wow. on stage, all <clears throat> entrusted with jewels and all that, but it, it sort of defined the essence of the richness of Thai, the richness of the culture and, and the sacred elephant. And, you know, it, it sort of, managed to distill it without being at all real those are the kind of designs i love uh, interesting yeah and you talked I, I think you talked about Mikado, you know setting it in a um a cabinet a china cabinet yeah. a china ca a china cabinet <laughs> and i like that that idea because it's it's different when the audience comes they're going to sit and be like what is this as opposed to if it's a realistic set yeah. their mind can already kind of figure it out in some ways of where it's going. If you start with something abstract like that, 
the audience can sort of, you know, just sit back and go, well, let's just go with it. You know, yeah. we don't know what this is. Our, our expectations are tampered and we can just kind of fall into the story and you've kind of like disarmed them without even uh, them really, really knowing it. I, I mean, I don't think consciously they're doing this. It's just subconsciously they're going, yeah. oh, what, what is this? All these elephants. <laughs> and now you talked about, so through the success of The King and I, you started now dabbling in Hollywood. I, I was, I'm curious, what kind of films inspire you? What kind of films do you like? Oh, I'm a great film guy. Um, I never thought I would ever direct one. And strange enough, I haven't. Um, after The King and I, you know, which was a very filmic production, I was invited over by Patrick Swayze, actually. Um, really? So yeah, it was an amazing time and I moved I bought a house and I bought a sports car. I did the whole thing. <laughs> and I learned so much. Um, but as a film goer, I, I like anything. I mean, I love things with bite. Mm. I mean, favorite movies, like looking, it's hard, it wasn't hard to remember your favorite movies, but The Hours had a huge effect on me. I love mm. The Hours. Um, it's a great film. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it, it, it wasn't for want of trying. I, I got so close to directing movies. Like we, we even had a first day of shooting once planned and a cast, and then we lost the rights. Um, and that was, it wasn't, it just didn't quite work out. And probably a good thing, because I hate early morning. So I, mean, <laughs> I was in a way quite relieved. I thought, oh, good, I don't have to. Then I started doing musicals again, and, yeah. you know, I have a feeling, though, that your your um, your attention to detail and your ideas would translate well to film. They, they would do. be they would be they would be abstract. Um, I think of you know I'm I'm a big David Lynch fan, and mm -hmm. he's somebody who writes from you know dreams, and I think you would come from more of a of taking that set idea and forming a film through that, which I, don't know, I would have been intrigued because yeah. I just, you know, I've, I've, I'm always fascinated with like new ideas with film because sometimes I feel a film, it can just kind of stay in the same place. And um, like, I just saw the film, Cronenberg, uh, David Cronenberg's film, uh, Crimes of the Future, right. which he's dealing with, you know, People would say he's a body horror director, but I wouldn't say this is really body horror. This is kind of looking at the body in the future because it's, it takes place in a time period of where um, there is no disease, there is no... So the only... So one of the things that people do is performance art is like kind of um, take out their organs and kind of desecrate their, uh, their flesh. And it's, it's quite... An it's, it's an interesting film. It's, it really, you know, it, it's, it's kind of unsettling at times, but it's like, I'm glad that there are directors that will push that. Because it's yeah. not all films, not all theater needs to make you feel like, oh, what a wonderful day. You know, it's, sometimes it could just make you think. And that's, um, so I like that you use the hours. Was, I mean, that was, um, I mean, you look at Nicole Kidman in that film, you look at, you know, Julianne Moore. I mean, it just, 
all these different elements in the different time periods. I mean, that's um, it's a great thing. Uh, taking it back to, uh, yeah, so now you get back into musicals and now you're going to work with Queen. Um, we will rock you. Now, he's, they say they don't, the band doesn't want to do it personal, which is something they have done many times. They're very protective of the band. Brian yeah. May, specifically. <laughs> um, did you find that difficult? I mean, like, was that a chip? Were you like ready to go? And then it was like, um, we don't want to do this, change it. Or um, was it in the. Yeah, I did develop another story um, for them, um, which they eventually found they, they didn't want. It was actually that musical would have been closer to the, um, the recent movie, The Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. <laughs> but this was a long time ago. Um, and when they didn't want to go that way, um, and that that version was actually produced in workshop, famous old workshop by Robert De Niro, <laughs> and that didn't happen. But at least I got to work with De Niro and wonderful people like Christine Chenoweth and uh, John Cameron Mitchell. I mean, the cast was amazing. Um, um, but they were they they didn't pursue it, but they were kind enough to ask me to direct uh, another complete different version because they'd enjoyed working with me on this workshop so of course i did it and uh it ran for 12 years very different from what originally i would have done but um quite a fun ride uh what what did you learn from uh john cameron mitchell what a great he's he's, he's a stunning actor um he's a very very i mean they all were i i he is a very, this was before Hedwig. Really? Um, extraordinary gifted person. I think he played Roger the drummer. It, it, it's such a long time ago. Kristen Chenoweth played Montserrat Caballé, <laughs> the opera singer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and there were some good people. Wilson Aradia, who got the Tony for Rent, he was, he played Freddie. It was a, it was a fun workshop. But, you know, that was just an experiment and one has to be yeah. eternally grateful to the band for letting me do a different version, which um, was, you know, 12 years in the West End. Yeah. Not bad. Was, um, what was Robert De Niro's feeling about it? What, like, what did he, did he, how did he? He, he loves Queen. He, he, he liked both versions. Mm-hmm. And extremely nice man, very polite, very good. A little bit terrifying, but not, not actually not. Just, just a, a you know, very, very nice person, I thought. Um, uh, it was amazing to have gotten so close to him. Interesting. <laughs> now, um, now you do Taboo with Boy George. Yeah. My idea, um, went off to see George, met him, and um, happened really quickly. A brilliant workshop, um, which actually was produced in London nine months after that workshop. So I think that's a record. And you brought it in, you, and you did it like in a disco. Uh, it, well, oh. I wanted to, it, it, the, first, the, the first one was in a, a, a vault of a church in Leicester Square that had never been used as a theater. Um, 
And then it made its famous excursion to Broadway where, with Rosie O'Donnell that didn't work. And then, then it went back to London and we did it in a disco. And I've just done the 20 year birthday at the London Palladium with 2,800 people there for two nights. Um, that was fantastic. Um, so Taboo has been with me a lot and, and whether it will ever happen again, I don't know, but um, it was, it's been an extraordinary ride, that show, amazing. Do you think Taboo was just, I don't know, not Broadway enough or was it too much or was it too, uh, was it too small to be big kind of circumstance? Yes. I think that's true. And Rosie was, you know, doing her, having problems with her magazine. It was all at the time when she was yeah. on the front page of every tabloid. It was a tricky time. Um, so it was one of those things. We certainly weren't an unnoticed show. Yeah. But St Stephen Sondheim did come to it and wrote to George and said, Really? I, I, I think this is one of the best musicals I've ever seen. I personally prefer the London version, um, which is very different. The London version was very, very out there, very anarchic. Mm -hmm. The Broadway version is more of a, tell a telling of the stories of Boy George and Lee Bowie. Um, they're very different shows with the same music. Um, the London one was anarch anarchism. And the one we did recently, three months ago at the Palladium was very anarchic. And that the London fans just loved all that. And it would be wonderful if somebody does it one day. His music so, that he, he wrote for the show, George's music, is he's a genius. He's just an amazing writer and lyricist. Do you think it would have worked better if you had if you had just leaned more into the anarchic style <laughs> in the abstract style? Or do you th yes, think it I, just I, I, would never have gotten seen because you would have producers going, what is this? This doesn't make know, any sense. I don't get it. <laughs> I, it, it. It might have, you see, then it wouldn't have been. I mean, look what's happening now on Broadway with a strange loop getting the, the Tony. It, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't then, it wasn't 2004 that that could have happened. But perhaps if we'd have started it downtown or Manhattan Theatre Club, or it, it could have had a different life. But um, so what we did was a more palatable telling of the, those extraordinary times in London. But I mean, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, interesting. I don't know. I, f I find it a fascinating story because I, I feel like it. I feel like it could have worked, but it shouldn't have been brought like straight to Broadway. I think, like you said, starting off more off Broadway and getting the city yeah. used to it, and yes. giving them a reason to be like, exactly. "We need more people to see this." Yes, because well, look, you know. it, it, Michael R. Jackson, twenty years to get Strange Loop to where it is now. Um, it takes that kind of time and yeah. um, special marketing and all the rest of it. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Moving on to uh, Zorro, because I, I was fascinated oh. reading about, uh, reading about what, what um, you said, I'm paraphrasing here. You said, um, I feel like a lot of these cultures are always looking for some savior to plunge them out of danger. And the thing that I, that I kept, when I read that, I started going, you know, it's very similar to what's going on, I, I think, 
with superheroes today. I mean, Zorro is kind of the first, uh, in some ways you could say the first superhero to, to yes. you know, to take that, you know, the, the, the savior. And I've, I was thinking about the parallels between that and religion. Does this, you know, you know, religion, there's always the savior and then, and the superheroes, there's always the savior and how they're kind of, how they're kind of linked. You know? Yes. And you've got to remember Zorro, when I was asked to do Zorro, well, we first did it in London 2008. Um, and and a, a gentleman called Barack Obama had just been elected president of the state. So I was very much thinking of that and thinking of it. Yeah. Uh, a, a savior, yes, he, yeah, I mean, you're right. Even Mr. Jesus, look at his sense of equality yeah. and, you know, so cultures are constantly searching for saviors and they reject them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's that's the uh, the funny thing. Yeah, they, we don't really learn from history. No. If history teaches us really anything, you find that we really don't learn from it. We just continue yeah. to make the same mistakes. round in circles. Different it's just a big circle, yeah. Because um, in that same interview, you talked about gypsies, and you said that the um, their access to fire and passion is something that uh, you don't see in in the British culture. I would dare say also in the American culture. Do you think it's because it's too uptight? I would say both are both yeah. are in need of. Um, fire and passion because we don't really allow for expression to be in we kind of want everybody to kind of conform not necessarily it, it can be clothing and style but it's more conforming to just the way you behave in public i mm -hmm. i think is something that uh i think gypsies are, are more uh, you know when you're open to fire and passion you know there's nothing stopping you from just taking this you know thing over here just slamming it off the table and just you know jumping onto the table and dancing or something which in this culture and in i would say in british culture would be frowned on if you did that in a restaurant you just slammed all the dishes off and just jumped on unless yeah. you're richard branson who i is don't is known to do stuff like that <laughs> yeah you know, so I thought. i'm very attracted to cultures that take risks yeah. Do do you find do you do you do you find America and Britain to be too analytical? Um, I know that's a broad. Well, question. It's a very broad. I, I don't know. There's so many Americas now. Um, you know, I don't know how. And I said earlier, going back to my own country, it's changed. I I, I don't know. Um, I just want people to move on and embrace the world as a fantastic yeah. unit. And I mean, that, I don't know about this country. I mean, I'm still attracted to this country yeah. and I've met great people here. Um, I can't really answer that. I mean, they, yes, I mean, therapy, <laughs> even I've gotten into that now, <laughs> analyzing everything. <laughs> um, can't really answer that. I, I, I'm deeply happy about where I live and I don't think I want to live anywhere else. So there must be something still right in this country and there must yes. still be, there are wonderful people around. Um, Interesting. 
Um, one of the plays I didn't hear enough about, you know, in some of the is um, Pure Imagination. Oh. Talk a little bit. I, I don't really have a lot of facts for this one. This one is, you know, you'll probably shock me with everything. So No, it's Pure Imagination, literally because I met one of the great lyricists who had two Oscars, Leslie Brickers, um, who has recently passed on, who is one of the great English treasures, a great lyricist and also became a composer but he wrote with Anthony Newley and he wrote he, he well two Oscars now I'm not going to remember which songs talk to the animals from Doolittle and he wrote he got another Oscar but I, I met him personally um and I can't remember why and gorgeous <laughs> wife and it I just he was talking about the one-man show of all his lyrics and we got it to happen. So um, that's as simple as that. And a wonderful man, a gentleman, a real English gent. And I just love being in his presence. And I, I, I wanted to do that for him when we did it. Mm. Now, Carbon La Cubana, um, you said that you were really taken by the Cuba, the, the love for mm. life even though they're under harsh circumstances. Amazing, yeah. and I, it, it was an extraordinary experience and tough and God, they're good people. Um, and that's one of my favorite projects. Um, the problem is it's it actually better in Spanish. I tried to do, I did a, a workshop in English in New mm -hmm. York. It was okay, but it, it works better in Spanish. So the future of that show will always be in Spanish. Um, and, uh, as I said, I hope, I hope it finds a place. Great arrangements by Alex Lacamoire, who arranged Hamilton. It has really good pedigree, and he's originally from Cuba, or his family is, and uh, God, he writes well for a Cuban band. Oh, yo, yo, he's fantastic. So yeah. that's a good one. Interesting, interesting. And uh, the last one, like right before uh, the pandemic, A Wonderful World, um, you talk about the 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 time period and how that really um, you, you didn't want to just do a musical about, about like, OK, here are the hits or as we would call the jukebox musical, where it's just like, here are all the hits. It's just the greatest hits for somebody you know, <laughs> that doesn't look exactly like the uh, the person. Whereas here you felt that this this gave you a chance to talk about issues because of what's going on in the time period. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that show. Um, well, I, I, I originally felt the subject was too big. I, it, it's my first black show. Um, mm. it, I mean, it's just a massive subject. And Louis Armstrong is an American icon. He's an African-American icon. A long career full of many things. I, I felt I couldn't do it. Um, <laughs> um, but then I found out that he been married four times and that gave me the way in to try and tell it from the, the viewpoint of these four very different women as they each married him and we've been slightly compressed history a bit but um it, it, it kind of becomes the spring summer autumn and winter of his life mm -hmm. um and i felt that might give me a way of telling it um and it did and that's moving on, on hopefully, well, more than hopefully, and uh, 
a great experience here. This Miami New Drama is a wonderful theatre. Um, so that's what's really involving me for the future. Yeah. I'm just hoping it comes together and sees the oh, light. Yeah, but that, 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 that sounds like that would play really well. I mean, yeah. when, I, when I was looking at it and I was watching, you know, some of it. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it, that, that it's kind of a sad thing because the pandemic just kind of, you know, took it yeah, away. These things, I, are there to, these things are there to try us and um, it, it, it might make it a better show eventually for giving us more time to rethink about it, you know. Yeah. I don't, I don't think one can look at anything as a bad, you know, you have to look at, okay, well, perhaps it wasn't quite ready, uh, you know, so we're a bit, bit back in development now because we got hit twice by the pandemic the first time we did it and the second time so um but we're moving ahead and um let's hope it um there's a wonderful world to be seen soon somewhere yeah no i, I like all right now we're getting to uh, the code which is the play i saw and uh, <laughs> i just thought this was a terrific show it really reminded me of um Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Really? That, okay. you know, all, all, all four of them kind of like decorate, you know, I could see Martha and, and everything. What, 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 tell me about your experience doing that play. Oh, it's, it's lovely, yeah, because Michael McKeever, who wrote The Code, was in the first A Wonderful World. We were very, you know, he did a small role, I mean, did several roles, you know, but he had a great time. I had a great time working with him. We became friends. Um, and sort of we met and said I said well have you got anything at the moment I feel like doing a small play so oh, I've just finished <laughs> simple as that <laughs> and I read it and really liked it and I did a reading for um Palm Beach Drama Works on Zoom and it went very well in which I met Tom Wall who was playing um Billy Haynes and uh it just kind of happened and, and Michael came up with the idea of doing it at the Foundry um which I was a bit nervous of because, you know, I, I knew they did lots of very sort of explicit content. Yes. Um, yeah. the, 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 the Ronnie Larson, who's a force of nature and a really nice guy. Um, <laughs> he really is. He got it there and um, they worked hard and um, it was a, 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 without any problems, all pleasure. Um, really enjoyed the cars, really enjoyed working with Ronnie. I loved his approach to the audiences. It, it was kind of being like reborn, you know, because I've done so many big stuff and suddenly to be that, and I was buying the props, I was the kind of acting as production manager and I, I really enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. And seeing, seeing Ronnie going around that house, pouring out glasses of white wine and warming oh, yeah. the audience up, yeah. I just think it was fun. And he's almost, yeah, he's performing. Forming. When he goes out there, you know, it's like, oh, look who's here in the audience. We have this person here. It's like he's riling them up to get to get you know to get them ready, as opposed to you know, yeah, he, he's cool. to the show. Yeah, and I told him I I would love to work there again, and I've just got to find something that he, he feels can bring in his house. And I think you know, it's good that they're not always doing explicit stuff, and they can. I, there's a place for that. I'm not against it. But nice that he can vary it a bit. And the audience seemed to love what what is basically quite a serious play with the code. And it's funny that it's um, uh, not a 
you know, no flesh in sight. Um, yeah. And he's had a good response from the audience, and um, they're looking forward to mixing their their rep. Uh, I, I, I would like that, to see that because I, yeah. I feel like their audience can handle that. For a long time, yeah. he was very against against that, and I saw the code and I saw the response to that, and I was like, okay, this is good. That they, they need to do more straight yeah. theater. Why not? You know, with, with obviously a gay theme and um, those yeah. two theaters, I think the one up next door, Island City, I mean, they have a kind of gay policy. Don't they? I, I don't know whether it, whether they. Yeah, they're, they're both they're both kind of uh, they both lend themselves to that to that style of well, gay. Look, look at where they are, you know, but yeah. gay gay themes are universal. So. No, I, yeah. I really look forward to going back there, and I, I, I just had a, I had a really nice time. <laughs> and of all the shows I've ever directed, I saw the code more often than I've ever seen any of my other shows. Even really? with the travel, I, yeah, I love going there. I, I just, it kind of gives you, it reinvents your original love of making yeah. theatre and just getting up and performing yeah. and hearing people laugh and. Uh, it, it did me a lot of psychological good. Um, That's good. Yeah. You know, now, did you the, come up with the uh, the idea of the set? Was was that? Well, Michael and I worked. To, yeah, I mean that's a typical Chris set. Um, and but Michael and I did it together. But I didn't want because he's the most famous designer in Hollywood, Billy Haynes. And no way can you do that, or would want to do that. So yeah. And, and, and I think Michael said, let's do black white. And that all I wanted was to make it look like a black box. So we got, went to Home Depot and got all those bricks and painted them black. So actually it was a black oh, box, but, but I don't think Ronnie's ever done it as cleanly as that. Um, yeah, that's what I liked about it. It was so clean and pristine. Yeah. It, it had this look, it could be in any time period, almost. Yes. Feel like. It gave it a timeless feel to it. And I got rid of I mean, I got away with furniture that was, a, <laughs> but I just wanted it all glass, uh, white and glass. So from a period point of view, I'd have been given a, a, a D minus, but it, I just wanted something that looked like something. Um, and I enjoyed yeah. doing that. Um, <laughs> so now yeah. they have, I, I think they've kept that black box. So they, if anybody wants a black box, they've got one, you know. Um, Interesting. Which, Interesting. which makes the stage look bigger, uh, I think. Anyway, did, I'm looking forward to my next show, you, The Foundry. The Foundry. will be in it. Yeah. I did you? It, it's very British. The Foundry. <laughs> did, going to did be you, in that uh, did, I, I hope so. I hope you'll consider me for that. When you, um, when you were, uh, did you find that you had to do a lot of research on the time period? Yes. Or did you feel um, a lot of it was built into the uh, into the uh, into the script? I, I always like to feel I know at least as much as the actors. So there's some great books that are helpful on that, um, and uh, mm. especially the book on Billy Haynes is a must. It's a very good book. It's called Wisecracker. Very good book. Um, I also read one on the agent Henry Wilson, um, mm -hmm. And the, uh, the, that book covers um, Rock Hudson, uh, who obviously the, the young man character is sort of a kind of Rock, Rock Hudson type. Somebody has to deny their sexuality to be a star. 
Um, yeah. So I felt pretty covered. And I, I did a musical very early about Tallulah Bankhead. Um, so I, I, I do know quite a lot about Tallulah and other fans. So, but I, you know, I, I, I had a good time on that one. And Michael is such a good man. What, yeah, what was it like directing the playwright as he's in the, um, uh, it's the kind show? Of weird. He kept saying, "Ignore me, ignore me." But it, it's <laughs> it, 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 it was sort of. It, I I was concerned about that, but we got on fine. I mean, he's he's a sweetheart, and um, uh, you know, but it, I think it was my first time doing that. Um, but look at Tracy Letts; he's in his own play. In, um, on Broadway at the moment, isn't he? Um, so it happens. Yeah, that's it. That's interesting. Yeah, no, uh, Michael's such a, a, a giving person. So, you know, you can tell he's not going to be the type that's going to be like, okay, uh, no, I, I, this needs to stay. This needs to stay red or, or whatever. You know, he's when I did my my interview with him a couple of weeks ago, he, you know, said, you know, if it's if it's green, it doesn't necessarily have to be green. And, you know, it's he's he's very, you know, just go with the flow. He's not set yeah, yeah. like like the writing is is the writing. But when it comes to the production, he's able to let things go, which is kind of a rarity in some because a lot of playwrights. You know, we're dealing with, you know, eccentric personalities. So, you know, it's like for him to be that willing to just go, you know, I, I joke with him, I say, I think it's because you come from that commercial background of uh, of storyboarding and everything. So you're able to, you're able to just let it go because you're looking at the final product as opposed mm -hmm. to most where they're like, they're looking for these like specific things. No, no, it must be green. Why does it need to be green? <laughs> because it's what I saw in my head. You know, it's that, you know, kind of thing. No, he's a good, he's a wonderful um, guy. Yeah. Now, wrapping up here a little bit, um, one of the things I love that you said is you said music theater is creating and opera is interpreting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Or is, or is this too far gone? Or am I talking about something like for the 80s and you're like, well, yeah, I'm not going to remember that. Um, <laughs> it's how I feel. Um, and I think I mentioned earlier that in opera, I mean, certainly when I was around, and this is a terrible generalization and to all my opera friends i would say i'm so sorry but at that time it was how outrageous you could set it um so i i, I couldn't do that um I, I i wasn't one of those people i did some odd ones um mm. but opera's it is a question of what did i when did i say that in some interview to you yeah, it was. Um, I believe it's in the same interview where you were talking to. Um, you were talking about Zorro, and uh, Gypsy. What what music theatre has allowed me to do is start with a clean slate. So opera, you're always you, with the composer. You're with um, the conductor, who have immense power in opera. Music was like, here we go. You're the boss. Do it. Um, <laughs> and um, it's not because I'm autocratic. It just I love that creation. And now you're going to say, "Well, I did the King and I, which is written," but I I haven't recently done anything that isn't new. Um, which I suppose, to your point, in film you're creating new stuff. Um, perhaps I like that. 
and I yeah, do steer I think that's... clear of things that have been written. Do I think, God, anything decent's been? I mean, who at the moment would do company again? You know, I, I, I yeah, you know, it's like I, I, I'm not. I don't think I'm very good at that. Um, yeah. Anyway, perhaps I could be, but I, tell me a show I can recreate, and um, I, I was, um, I'll do it. You know, I was just thinking about you playing in the vortex. Do you know the vortex? The no, Noah Coward. No. Read the vortex. No. You'd have to I'm find to a read. great, a great movie-like lady star. I've always wanted to do the vortex. Okay. <laughs> no, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna definitely read. But that's a I'm revival. I was just running my head through what plays they could do at, uh, um, uh, you know. Yeah. I mean, said. So, I mean, look, just run. I was just looking at you, thinking, oh, you'd be good in the vortex. I think Rupert Everett <laughs> did it last. Um, and I did a reading with another movie star man. Uh, anyway, have a read. All right. I've, I've, um, I, I like Noel Coward. So, yes, I'm definitely going to read that. Um, okay. One thing I love that you said, um, I don't mind where I am, really, as long as it doesn't stay the same. And I think that's that's so true to me. I don't want to, I, you know, you don't want to be, I don't know, maybe this has changed with something, but it's like, I, I've noticed that about you. You know, you have your, your English, uh, when you were in England, then you went to London, then you went to Australia, then you've been in New York, now you've been in LA, now you're in Miami. I like that you've, you've moved. I mean, Thailand, it, you seem to always want to be adding more, to the, you don't seem like something you're just going to sit back and be like, you know, that's eh, enough. Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm getting older now, so I think, oh God, I don't know where else to go. And I, I'm amazed I said and that. Antarctica is the next one. There's no <laughs> life there. <laughs> it's it's kind of funny. Like if you like, there's like there really isn't any country in Antarctica. It's just Antarctica, the continent, and there's not like really like nobody really wants it. So there's no like. There's no countries fighting over it, you know. It's just, it's like the only place that's just, it's just Antarctica. Yeah, we don't have okay, cities well, here. Borders. So perhaps, <laughs> let's let's do the vortex in Antarctica. With a yeah, yeah there of, you go. A couple of seals <laughs> as an audience. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've got uh, we've got a non-paying audience today. It's a penguin and a and a seal. <laughs> um. One thing I also liked, um, you seem to be, in some ways, I would say a creature of circumstance, necessity being the mother of invention, because you really, um, as you've said in interviews, like, I don't know how I did it, but, you know, I think the fact that you didn't know how to do it was kind of how you figured out how to do it, because, be. like you said, there was no directing schools like there are today. It's not like you, you're kind of like okay you're the director okay uh what do i do <laughs> might be so, yeah. I, um I, I like producing directing you know the old thing of the kind of half a producer half a director uh, creation i don't think i would say that again i think one's got to be more careful these days <laughs> Well, probably, yeah, probably. <laughs> what you have to be careful about everything nowadays. I mean, who, yeah. you could be misinterpret absolutely anything. Indeed. I think that's the uh, frustrating uh, times that we're living in. Is like 
we're not looking at the interpretation. We're just looking at the, this is what was written. And it's like, yeah, but what was he exactly yeah. saying? What is the meaning behind it? You know, the words are words, but it's the meaning that makes them something, you know, I don't know. That's what I would say to that. Um, almost wrapped up here. Um, American training versus English training. The, one of the things that I, from doing my research with you is you talked about, um, you really love the American training, especially when it comes to musicals, as you said, they're, they're like, they're really singing and they're really, it's interesting because I find with the American training, the thing that lacks that um, the British training really has is their, um, their development of the instrument, the voice. Like uh -huh. all of the acting is really, I mean, I work with somebody who really is showing me kind of that style because in America, it's, it's all about the feeling, what, what, what are the circumstances? Whereas in England, you're dealing more with how you say something. Um, it, it, it might is that be. something you notice? <laughs> what I noticed, I think the origin of that comment was my first Broadway audition and Broadway auditions, I think certainly pre-COVID, have always been uh, phenomenal. And the preparation, the, I mean, I think that is current in England now, um, but uh, from music theatre, God, people are well-trained. They know their job there. And to all that triple threats, to all of that. I guess I'm really referring to that. Um, mm. And it's always been impressive, um, the American application to the job they're doing. And uh, um, I, I, I guess I mean that. And I, I, I'm sure now it's the same in England. And yes, there are many other things mm. that English training has, but I do love in the Americans that here we go, honey, you know, and uh, yeah, I've seen some good auditions. Yeah. Okay, so now we're just gonna do some little rapid fire questions here. Um, do you have a beginning of the day routine? <laughs> <laughs> um, stay in bed as long as possible. And keep your okay. phone off. Do you have a nighttime routine? Yeah, watch Netflix for three hours. Okay. Do you meditate? I meant I have to now. Um, yeah, so I'm being mm -hmm. taught to meditate for my health hmm. good um what's the last book you read oh it'd always be work um so probably the Billy <laughs> Haynes book okay what are you watching right now I'm watching Sex Education British Netflix fantastic ah. it's really good all right well, I want to say thank you for doing this. I really I enjoyed appreciate it. it. And I this, hope to see you in wonderful. In, see you in person, perhaps not too long, hence. Absolutely. Um, how that, can uh, people reach you if you want them to reach you? <laughs> um, Facebook, I guess. I'm very okay. old fashioned. All right. And let me know if you're in well, Miami or Beach or something. So, um, be nice. Since we've only met for about half an hour. <laughs> now we <laughs> now we're almost intimate friends. Now we've now we've gotten there. All right. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for that lovely research too. Thank you. Thank you.
Okay, that about does it for my interview with Christopher Renshaw. You can find him on Instagram at Chris Rinch, C-H-R-I-S-R-E-N-S-H. Yes, and I want to thank Christopher Renshaw for doing this interview. I hope you enjoyed the full interview, and uh, I will see you next time on the D-M-F.